and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, the IFG's Deputy Director, and back again as Inside Briefing's Deputy Presenter. From contentious runways at Heathrow to contested ways to leave the EU, the government is no stranger to its decisions being challenged in court. Indeed, central government faces over 2,000 claims for judicial review every year. But is the government right to complain about and seek to reform the way the law works with or against policymaking? A new IFG report out this week explores this tricky territory, and today we'll take a look too. We'll then move on to a subject which, prediction, could face some legal issues of its own, COVID passports. The government is consulting on how and where they could be used. Boris Johnson says he's in favour, but has the Prime Minister given enough thought to the risks and difficulties that the scheme involves? Another new IFG paper, we're spoiling you this week, sets out the eight questions that the government needs to answer. We'll talk to one of the report's authors later. To kick off this week's episode, I'm joined in the virtual studio today by the IFG duo behind our new report on the government's relationship with the law. Senior fellow Catherine Haddon. Hi, Kath. Hi. And Raphael Hogarth, IFG associate. Hi, Raphael. Hello. And I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by a guest who knows more about this subject than... Well, pretty much anyone. So Jonathan Jones, Head of the Government Legal Service from 2014 to 2020. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. Thank you for having me. How are you finding life after government? Well, I'm having fun, actually. Uh, I joined Linklaters as a senior consultant, and I'm enjoying conversations like this about lots of things that are going on in the world of law and the rule of law and policy. And you've embraced Twitter? Well, I'd embraced Twitter before I left civil service, but I'm enjoying the newfound freedom that (laughs) that has now come my way. Very good. Let's start with this question of the government's relationship with the law and the role that the law plays in policymaking. The 2019 Conservative Manifesto promised to ensure that judicial review would not be abused to conduct politics by another means or to create needless delays. That's a quote. And the government is consulting on the recommendations of a review into judicial review. Raphael, let's give us a one-line answer, please. What is judicial review? Uh, I'll do my best. Judicial review is a court process uh, whereby someone, or potentially a, a company, can challenge the lawfulness of a government decision. So that might be a decision to refuse a claim for a particular benefit, or, or it might be a decision to trigger Article 50 and start the Brexit process. Uh, court can't strike the government decision down as unlawful just because it was a bad decision or because it was the wrong decision, uh, but it can strike down a government decision because there was no rational basis for it at all, or the government had no legal power to make the decision, or the decision wasn't made according to a fair process. And the review I mentioned that the government's conducted into judicial review, what was that all about? Well, as you said, the government or the Conservatives promised in their manifesto to take a look at the impact that judicial review was having on government and uh, and reform that. And they've sort of done this in a process of two stages. So last year, the government appointed a panel of legal experts chaired by the barrister and former uh, Conservative Justice Minister, Lord Foulkes, uh, to look at the case for reforming the law and procedure Uh, of JR. And that had a really wide scope looking at the law, the procedure, which rules should be set by the judges, which rules by Parliament. That panel actually recommended quite limited reform. And their report was pretty trenchant defence in many places of the importance of JR in holding government to account. The, The government has now opened a consultation of its own, not connected to the panel, 
uh, on judicial review reform. And it wants to consult on the reforms that uh, were suggested by the panels, which the panel, which, as I say, is sort of quite limited, quite techie reform. It also wants to consult on reforms that were not suggested by uh, the panel, uh, and most controversially of all, on reforms that would make it easier for Parliament to oust or remove the court's jurisdiction to review certain government decisions altogether. And can you just give us a, a sense of the sorts of reforms we're talking about here? Because it's, it's a bit of a technical area, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, I suppose when this process kicked off, the government had a pretty wide scope and it was asking questions like, should we actually limit the grounds on which the court can overturn a government decision, effectively cut back the court's jurisdiction to review the exercise of executive power? The, the, the panel that it appointed broadly said, no, let's let's not do that. The grounds for review look broadly all right as they are. Two other areas, broadly speaking, that it's thinking about. One of them is changing the remedies that the court can give in judicial review cases. So at the moment, the court can strike down a government decision and, and uh, d- declare it effectively to be a nullity, that it never happened at all, which can have various knock-on effects. The government wants to look at whether we ought to cut back the decision to declare decisions a nullity. Uh, And it's also looking at the the procedure around JR, so how different parties can get involved in a judicial review, what the time limits are, and that sort of thing, uh, in order to achieve uh, what it says is this objective of uh, preventing JR from causing needless delays to the business government. Thanks, Raphael. Kath, have recent events sort of heightened the government's frustrations around judicial review? What, why has this come to a head now? Well, I mean, we've already touched on it, or, or Raphael has, talking about the Article 50 process. Actually, I mean, complaints about judicial review from government have been abound for a, a long while. Uh, it's from the sort of 1990s onwards that you get a much greater growth in judicial review cases being brought. But actually, if you start looking at the figures, a lot of those are around immigration and asylum cases. And those have now been handed off to a a particular tribunal to deal with. So in recent years, there hasn't been this kind of explosion that some ministers have referred to in judicial review cases. But there is still concerns. The Blair government, they had, you know, worries about judicial review. The Cameron government did a a number of uh, reforms as well. So it's not like it's not a long running issue. But I think Brett it has heightened the temperature around a lot of this. People will remember the Article 50 cases brought by the businesswoman, Gina Miller. A lot of that was actually about giving Parliament a greater role, but it rankled many inside government, inside Conservatives, and, and particularly, obviously, for Brexiteers. Similarly, the Supreme Court case around prorogation, when the, gov- uh, the Boris Johnson's uh, attempt to try and prorogue Parliament for, uh, you know, what was seen as an unduly long period of time that was struck down by the Supreme Court, that also really rankled many inside government. There's plenty other cases, though, where government has actually won because of, of um, you know, the court's involvement. But still, those kind of cases, you know, it's not necessarily about the amount of them. It's sometimes around questions of is the courts getting more involved in politics and some of it's just about high profile court cases you mentioned Heathrow in the beginning where sort of policies that have been on the books for ages it feels to some inside government like they're getting blocked or delayed 
But what we wanted to ask was actually, is some of that not about the role of the courts, but about the role of policymaking and the way in which legal advice is brought to bear in thinking about policies and making them sort of proofed against a JR process rather than worrying about the JR process to come and not thinking about policymaking? So, Jonathan, you've seen this all at close quarters for, from within government. Do you feel that ministers' frustrations with, with judicial review are, are fair? Well, first of all, as Kath has said, this is not new. I mean, this question of what the right role of the court should be in adjudicating on government policy goes back as long as I remember. And it is sort of human nature that ministers don't like it when their policies or their decisions are struck down by the courts. So that is all understandable. And it's perfectly legitimate, I think, that from time to time, government looks at this and it's asked in the past the Law Commission to look at it and it's now asked this independent review under Lord Fox to look at it. And that's all perfectly understandable and right. But in the end, I would say that good policymaking and lawful policymaking are really two sides of the same coin. So we should not see this as some kind of battle between government and the courts or between government and the law. In the end, I would hope that any government will want to make good policy that's based on sound evidence and sound analysis, that weighs up all the competing factors, that follows a fair procedure. That's good policy. And it's also policy that is likely to survive challenge in the court. So I think it's legitimate for uh, government to want to look at this. But I'm not surprised that the independent review has concluded that on the whole, radical change is not justified. And that aside from some relatively modest adjustments, what we're seeing is the rule of law playing out in a perfectly proper way. And the governments will, yes, sometimes lose cases, mostly wins. But that overall, the process is working is working pretty well. And the, the, the one other point I'd make about this is the role of Parliament, which is that in many cases, what the courts are doing is interpreting and applying constraints that have been imposed by Parliament. So when Parliament confers powers on ministers, it will set out what the limits of those powers are, it will set out how they're to be exercised, whether they're duties to consult and so on. And again, the, the, it will be in the interests of the government to get those things right. And when they don't, uh, the courts are really just doing what Parliament has asked them to do. That's not the fault of, of the lawyers or the courts. That's just part of good decision making within the law and the courts doing their job in interpreting and applying the law passed by Parliament. And did you find working with ministers when you, you were in government that, that they appreciate this? Do you think that, that they understand the role of, of the law within the policymaking process? I mean, I imagine it is different with different ministers, or is it really just seen as a blocker? Well, it does vary between ministers and it varies between departments because I think, as, as your report, as the IFG report says, the, some departments are much more heavily involved in judicial review than others because of the nature of the decisions they're taking. So some ministers and some departments will be much more familiar with this than others where judicial review might only come along every every couple of years. So to some extent, it depends on the the personal experience of the 
of the minister and the, the nature of the work of the department. As I've said, undoubtedly, there's a human element to this, which is if a minister has a particular policy or decision that it wants that, that they want to pursue, they won't welcome being challenged on it and they won't welcome losing in court. That's all understandable. But most of the time, I think, ministers do understand that they are exercising powers within a legal framework. Very often, as I've said, powers conferred by parliament um, and therefore subject to the constraints that that parliament has set out in the legislation. Mostly, ministers will understand that and they will be open to advice on it. And then uh, you may want to come on to this, but it will be for ministers to decide in the light of the advice uh, how much risk they want to take, how much risk they're prepared to take, and sometimes they will just go too far and the courts will cor- will correct them. They won't necessarily welcome that, but most of them understand that's the framework within which they operate, I think. Raphael, do you want to just pick up on that point um, that, that Jonathan's made there? Because that's something we talk about in the report, isn't it? It's this sort of risk appetite that, um, that, that ministers have and, and how they communicate that. Absolutely. I mean... I suppose there are really two elements to communicating about legal risk in government. One of them is communicating about the legal risk itself, kind of saying there's a 30% chance you're going to get a challenge, there's a 60% chance you'll lose it, whatever it might be. You know, the government has developed quite a sophisticated uh, system for communicating that risk. It has something internally called the the legal uh, risk matrix, which you know Jonathan and his um, colleagues in GLD use every day will have used every day, which sort of makes sure that advice about levels of risk is communicated on a sort of consistent basis that ministers will be able to uh, recognise and understand. But the other component of this is communication of legal risk appetite. And we say that that, that doesn't work as well uh, in government. And that can sometimes lead to tensions between ministers and their officials, between ministers in different departments uh, about what the right strategy is, how much legal risk to tolerate. Uh, And we say that's one of the things policymakers need to think about. It's open to the Prime Minister, for instance, to, you know, send the word out from the centre, which is often, uh, we were told, more bullish about tolerating legal risk, uh, that he, you know, the Prime Minister wants this government to be a government that is more comfortable with legal risk and keen to forge ahead with its policy agenda. That'll mean that it loses more often, obviously, um, but it'll also mean that uh, every now and again, it manages to proceed with a policy and, and win that it otherwise might have amended. So so we just say that's something that ministers need to be conscious of and communicate about with each other and their officials. And because one of the things I found really interesting was the point you made in the report about how for some departments, the sort of boundary between policymaking and, and the courts, it, that, that's how policy gets made. It's the testing of, of the policies um, for example, in the Home Office, in the courts, which which sort of defines the boundaries of, of those policies. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we were told uh, that, in fact, in, in the Home Office, sometimes ministers would rather see the outcome of a particular decision-making process end with a decision by a judge, so they know what the, what the sort of boundaries of their powers are, than they would see it end with Uh, decision-making within government. And actually, part of what they're trying to do is push the boundaries of their their sort of suite of policy and administrative powers by testing those powers in court. In other departments, which are not sort of law enforcement departments, if you like, in the same way that the Home Office is, 
They just want to get on with their policy agenda. Uh, and to the extent that legal risk supervenes on that process, that's because they're, they're thinking about questions of whether you know, the process that they've adopted to pursue that policy agenda might end up being challenged in court by, by way of judicial review. Thanks, Raphael. Jonathan, do you think, where do you think the government's going with this? Are we likely to see significant changes or is it, is, is it just going to, are we going to end up with sort of more, more tinkering changes? Well, um, as Raphael said, the government has now embarked on a process of consultation following the independent review, which in a couple of respects does go further than the relatively modest changes that the review recommended. So um, this has been touched on. One is, one is the idea that the government might open new ways of ousting the jurisdiction of the court, of excluding the courts altogether from certain types of decision. And the other is that in some cases, remedies, when the government loses a case, the remedies might only apply into the future, might be prospective only, and might therefore not be available for losses or damages that have already been suffered up to the date of the challenge. So on those two areas, the government is going further or is proposing to go further in the independent review. I mean, I think both of those issues, which are being consulted on, so we don't know for sure what the government will do, raise quite significant issues of principle, and people will have be commenting on these, I guess, but would, would I think, alter the balance that currently exists between between government and the court, and I think could, depending on what happens, could potentially uh, raise concerns and cause injustice in individual cases. So I think we'll have to see what happens on those two specific areas where the government is suggesting that it might go further than the independent review. To answer your question, therefore, this is not this is not gone away, at least not yet. And I mean, you resigned over the question of how this government viewed the rule of law. Was that a one-off issue or, you know, are the issues we've been talking about here indicative of the sort of more systematic problem? Well, the, the issue over which I resigned was in one sense quite specific and it was in particular about the government's approach to its obligations under international law, uh, that's to say under the EU withdrawal agreement. Concerning though that was, concerning enough for me to resign over it, I think is a, is a different strand from what we're seeing here, which is what the level of scrutiny should be of government's decisions and policy under UK law. Whether this is part of a pattern, I hope not. I don't think it necessarily is part of a pattern. As I say, it's perfectly legitimate for the government to examine these questions and to consult on them. That is not of itself an assault on the rule of law. What the government now does, in the light of the further consultation, well, we'll have to see. But so for now, I suppose the jury's a bit out. So, after a week of haircuts, pints outside and some non-essential shopping, parts of the UK feel a little more normal this week. But so much is still firmly closed. So what can be done to help open up stadiums, pubs, clubs and perhaps even get rid of social distancing altogether? Could COVID passports or vaccine certificates be the answer? We're joined now by Tom Sass, IFG Associate Director and the author of our second IFG Report of the Week, which sets out the eight questions the government needs to address about its vaccine passport plan. Hi, Tom. Hi, Hannah. So quick 
background check. The Prime Minister is a fan of these passports, we think? Yes, broadly he is a fan. So about 10 days ago, they published an update on the review that they'd launched back in February, saying that you know they were in favour of looking at this. They thought it was a good idea. The Prime Minister called it the right approach. And, and broadly, he sees it as a potentially quite important way to help him meet his target of releasing all restrictions by the 21st of June. And that includes social distancing indoors. And the government's doing a review, isn't it? When are we going to find out what, what that's found out? So the review's not due to publish until June. Uh, that's uh, being led by Michael Gove. Alongside that, the government is running various pilots. So it's looking at the use of passports in uh, large sports events in the run-up to the FA Cup final at Wembley and also large uh, concerts. So we're not expecting full details until then. But so far, the government sort of dodged or, or the Prime Minister has dodged any of the sort of questions on why exactly he thinks they're a good idea. So what are those questions? Your, your report sets out some sort of key questions that we think we need to know answers to in order to, to, to understand what the government has in mind. What are, what are some of those questions? Yeah, so we've got eight big ones in in the report. I won't go through all of them, but I think the key ones are firstly sort of how this could be enforced safely if it is going to be done very widely. So the thing which was exercising a lot of people in the last week or so has been the idea of COVID passports in pubs. And there's a big question there about how that could be enforced and how indeed the government could check whether it were being enforced. Lots of uh, people in the hospitality industry and pub owners saying they don't really have the skills or capability to do that. And if we look over to Israel, which is the country which has sort of gone furthest in implementing a scheme like this, lots of bars and restaurants are meant to be checking people's green passes, as they call them there, but they're not really doing that. Uh, So I think enforcement is a big question. Secondly, sort of how the actual system would work. There's obviously quite a complicated app to develop here, not hugely encouraging experience of the contact tracing app first time around in the pandemic, but also a quite complicated question about how you incorporate testing into this system. That's needed to avoid this being very unfair and sort of excluding certain people who can't take a vaccine. But there's big questions about what a lateral flow test can enable you to do, for example. And then I think the third big bucket is around exclusion and potentially the sort of impact of any system on vaccine confidence. So clearly some people are more reluctant to take the vaccine because maybe they mistrust the government. And there's quite a lot of concern that creating a a sort of scheme which excluded people from core activities of sort of daily life could further harm vaccine confidence in some of those groups. Okay, so plenty, plenty that we still need to think through. Jonathan, just thinking about it, I mean, presumably, and and turning back to the law, there there could be some legal problems around around this sort of idea, could there? Well, there could potentially there's been a focus on the risk of discrimination against groups who, for whatever reason, uh, either are not taking up the vaccine or uh, for any other reason might get excluded from holding a passport. Um, So uh, there is a kind of discrimination risk. But actually, this really goes back more generally to the point I made earlier on judicial review, which is that good, well-reasoned, well-supported, well-consulted on policy around around vaccines or certificates or whatever they're going to be called is more likely to withstand challenge in the court than flaky hurriedly introduced policy where the sorts of details that are discussed in in your report the IFU report haven't properly been bottomed out then there is a risk of challenge either on discrimination grounds 
or on more general grounds of irrationality or just the, the policy is unworkable. So the, the short point is that the better reason, the better supported, and the clearer the law is around passports, the more likely it is to survive any challenge in the courts. But I do agree with what's said in the IFT report that there are a lot of questions, therefore, around exactly what the law will say, what the exceptions are, how it will be enforced and how it will be monitored. Raphael, do you agree with that? Do you think there are there are some pitfalls that, that the government might fall into in, in trying to reduce, introduce a scheme like this? It seems to me that there's a, a sort of there'll be a temptation for it to sort of if it wants to introduce a scheme to do so using secondary legislation um, because it knows that there's some opposition um, to the idea in Parliament. I wrote a piece uh, arguing I, I I know probably in vain that actually the better thing to do would be uh, to to do it using primary legislation so that the Parliament would have a chance to properly debate some of some of the intricacies of a scheme before it was introduced. I don't know what you think about that. Yes, I mean, that that has two advantages, one of them being that it, it means that the policy gets properly scrutinised uh, and the government can be properly held to account for the proposal it makes. Uh, the other advantage is that, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, it is going to be more difficult, not not necessarily impossible, depending on the human rights considerations that might be in play, but more difficult to challenge any scheme of vaccine passports that has the stamp of legislative approval from Parliament that you get in primary legislation. But I I completely agree with what Jonathan says about uh, legal risk on this being lower if the scheme is properly thought through. I mean, if you think there, there are sort of two families of legal worry about vaccine passports. One of them is is the one under equality and human rights law that Jonathan mentions of discriminating against certain groups, potentially against uh, certain ethnic groups, um, or, or potentially against those with certain disabilities who can't have the vaccine for whatever reason. And, and, and the worry is there might be some form of indirect discrimination there. But I mean, in the law of indirect discrimination, indirect discrimination, that is to say, discrimination on the basis of something that isn't itself protected, but is linked to a protected characteristic, that can be lawful if it is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So if the government kind of thinks through, what are we trying to achieve here? Why is this a proportionate way of doing it? Then it protects itself against legal challenge. Other potential family of worries here are a sort of data protection uh, worries that some people have been writing about, about you know, the, the swilling around of extremely sensitive personal data pertaining to people's health. But again, there, you know, the, the, the processing of that kind of data can, of course, be perfectly lawful uh, if it's done on a, on a basis that is set out in law in pursuance of uh, legitimate aims and, 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 and public health is, is likely to be one of those. So provided that, you know, the, the, the scheme is properly worked out, the objectives are clear, and the government's very clear about the way in which the precise measures it chooses to introduce are linked to those objectives. If it can do all of that, uh, then it'll have a better chance of defending itself if anybody does bring a challenge. And Kath, as I said, you know, there seems to be a sense that quite a lot of MPs, the COVID recovery group and so on, are, are not entirely happy about this, although it's one of those interesting cases where actually the public seem to be more in favour of the idea of vaccine passports than their representatives in Parliament. But how easy do you think this is going to be to get past Parliament if that's the way the government decides to go? I think this is this is definitely something where the Prime Minister is going to find himself uh, in a great deal of hot water again with his backbenchers. There's a question, obviously, about how much sort of 
preparing the pitch that he does in advance. Like you say, there's a big question about whether they go for primary legislation, which also gives MPs you know, the chance to have a proper debate about this, to scrutinise it. But also, as you say, it allows them to amend parts of it, not just a straight, you know, up-down vote on whether they approve the whole thing or not. They actually get to de- sort, of, sort of help design the scheme a bit. And, and as we were talking about in terms of the need for good judicial review to sort of provide good policy check, um, Parliament similarly can provide that kind of check. So, yeah, I think it is a real difficulty for the government how they manage this and where they go for it. I mean, it's important to remember the point of this is to try and balance out, you know, how you let the public engage in behaviour, which even with vaccination is still relatively risky when you've got variants sort of, you know, all over the world. There's still, you know, COVID still poses huge risks to, especially to sort of, you know, younger population who haven't been vaccinated yet. And the more it spreads, the more chances are, again, for more variants that the vaccine doesn't protect against. So there's sort of big headaches still for the government, even given the success of the vaccine vaccine rollout thus far. And making sure that the people who are protected the most are the ones engaging in any kind of risky behaviour is one reason why you would do things like this. The alternative is to keep more restrictions in place for longer, which again, you know, government's backbenchers and the Prime Minister himself is not in favour of. So it's it's kind of what is the best solution in these circumstances. And I, I think it is going to be a difficult one for the Prime Minister. Thanks, Kath. And and Tom, you mentioned Israel earlier. Are there any examples of other countries who have done this successfully? And and ultimately, do you think that we are heading to have some sort of COVID vaccination um, sort of certification scheme here? So Israel is a big one, actually, really the the only one that's got very far in implementing a sort of domestic scheme. As I say, they've, they've got something called the Green Pass, and that's being used in Israel for getting into bars, restaurants, uh, cafes, gyms, all sorts of things. It's available to everyone. You can sort of download it from the government website fairly easily. I think there's a couple of reasons why it's not perhaps a complete model for the UK. First of all, quite an interesting piece in The Spectator this week by Katie Balls, which is sort of making the point that Israel is generally a sort of more security-minded country where perhaps the sort of concerns about liberty and privacy are less to the fore in a sort of political debate. I think there's also perhaps sort of in the political system there sort of less of a concern potentially about exclusion. So I mentioned some of the impact on vaccine confidence, and there's some evidence that that has happened in the Israeli Arab population, which where already uptake was lower. And the third thing is that Israel has not used COVID passports in bars and restaurants and other places to remove the need for social distancing. So they're actually not using it quite in the way that Boris Johnson is potentially imagining. So I think it's not a complete model. Where I suspect we might be going on this and where I think would be sensible is I think there is an argument for piloting some of this. I think it's quite sensible to look at it for large sports venues, see what's possible, music venues. I think the idea of implementing it much more widely in pubs across the country is much, much more difficult politically, but also from an implementation angle. So, So we'll see on that. And I'm curious to find out whether they're going to use it in Parliament, which is always an interesting test bed for these things. Well, thanks, everybody. That's it for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Raphael Hogarth, Tom Sass, and especially to Jonathan Jones. And thank you all so much for being with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got a couple of brilliant episodes there for you, one looking at how prime ministers can run successful reshuffles, just in case that becomes relevant, and one featuring Kath in the presenter's chair, 
which takes a tour through the last 300 years of British Prime Ministers and what it takes to be a good one. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Take a tour through the last 100 episodes we've now recorded and do leave us a review. And remember to check out all our work, including the new reports we've been talking about at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your new haircuts, everyone. <laughs>